All right, good morning. Love it. If you're at the back, there are plenty of seats at the front. Lovely. All right. <clears throat> if you're new, welcome. Hello. <laughs> good to see you. Welcome back. <laughs> uh, if you're new, my name's Obed, and I'm one of the leaders here at King's Cross Church. And um, again, it's always a joy to have you join us this morning. As a church, we are passionate about Jesus Christ, and so we um, endeavor to be a church family on mission with Jesus Christ. And as of, what, four, five weeks, six weeks ago, we started a series based on the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, and it's been um, quite, quite a journey through Hebrews. We're in chapter three this week, and so if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter three, and we are going to be spending our time within verses 7 through 19, verses 7 through 19. Um, just so you know, I, uh, I don't drink coffee, so I don't understand the kind of effect it has on people, but apparently when you are feeling a little, you know, drowsy and like a little bit chill, you want to drink some coffee to bring you to life. And I say that to say that whatever you use to be alert, you're going to need it this morning. We have a... <laughs> We have a lot to cover, we do, and what we're going to be covering is dense, okay? It's densely populated, um, like a city. Did that make sense? I think it did. Yeah, densely populated, like, <laughs> and, and so you're going to need to be alert. And so whatever you need, coffee, donut, um, if you remain alert through making notes, whatever it is, use it. We have a lot to cover, and it's dense, but it's going to be so good. So good. Why? Because it's God's word. And God's word is just so incredible and deep and wide and impactful in so many ways. All right. So Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. And as always, we want to express our honor for God's word by standing for the reading of it. Hebrews chapter 3. Verses 7 through 19 reads, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in a wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for, 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 for 40 years? Wow, that was a mouthful. It wasn't. It's just me not concentrating, reading. Was it not with those who sinned, <laughs> whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. 
Let's pray. God, we need you. We need you. We need you not just to understand the logic of this passage, but we need you to understand it in a way that changes our lives. Give us a fresh perspective of this. God, we need you. As it was mentioned earlier in this verse, your Holy Spirit. Your Holy Spirit is real and at work in all of our lives this morning. So God, help us. Help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. History teaches us a lot. There are many lessons we can learn from history. Um, don't know if there's any history majors, uh, majors in here, but if you are studying history or you have studied in history, or have studied history, you would know that history repeats itself. History repeats itself. That is why we need to be aware of history so that we can learn from history. Winston Churchill once said this, those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And I'm not just talking about history as in um, world and global history, but I'm talking about history personally. You have a history. And as a result of your history, you learn currently from your history and the mistakes you've made. History teaches us a lot, not just about the present, but about the future as well. This morning, I woke up to a text from a friend who informed me that the Padres <laughs> have, <laughs> have a bunch of new fans. <laughs> Everyone's jumping on the bandwagon now. The Padres successfully defeated their arch rivals and their enemies, the LA Dodgers. Did I get that right? Yes. I knew that would cause this reaction. That's what happened. <laughs> and as a result, this morning, I've been speaking to a couple of people about, you know, Padres and chances of winning the World Series. And don't know why it's called the World Series. But anyway, <laughs> it's only based in America. Talking about the Padres and the possibilities of winning the World Series. And, you know, I said, we could do it. We could do it. This is our time to do it. And they agreed. And the next question I asked was, have the Padres ever won the World Series? They couldn't remember. And that was an interesting conversation because as I was thinking about the lessons we learned from history, if history is to be helpful and we are to base our, the future on history, it doesn't look like the Padres are going to win the World Series. It doesn't. I am sorry, but history doesn't help us here. Something else has to help the Padres. History teaches us lots about the present and the future. Our passage for this morning 
is largely based on a historical event. And the reason why the author of Hebrews includes this particular story or historical event in this passage is to teach us some lessons. This week, the author of Hebrews will issue another warning. Another warning. And this is one of five passages found in Hebrews that contain a, more, a warning. We looked at the first warning a few weeks ago in chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, when we were urged to pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And so this week, what the author is going to do is issue another warning, and he will use an event in history to teach us an important lesson. He will use this historical event to warn us about the possibility of falling away from God because of a hard heart. Good morning. This morning's message is not just going to be intense, as in there's a lot to cover, but it's going to be intense because of the topics we're going to deal with. We don't know for sure who wrote the book of Hebrews, but we do know that whoever is behind this magnificent piece of literature was proficient in the Old Testament. This is evident because Hebrews has a ton of Old Testament questions, imagery, and ideas. And our passage for this morning is a great example of it. If you know your Bible well, um, as we read our passage for this morning, you would have made the connection. You would have said, this sounds familiar. This is not the only place in the Bible it exists because our passage for this morning, most of the content is based on Psalm 95. Most Jews back then were very, very familiar with Psalm 95. It was used as a liturgical introduction to Friday evening and Saturday morning services at the synagogue. And this psalm is basically a summary of Israel's wilderness wanderings and their unwillingness to obey and believe God when they needed to. That's what most of chapter 3 of Hebrews verses 7 through to 19 is based on. Psalm 95. Look at verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, stop right there. Um, several things for us to highlight here, okay? And so if you've got a pen, underline, um, first of all, the Holy Spirit and underline, um, therefore. Um, this is important, okay? Because Although the identity of the author of Hebrews is unknown, um, the Holy Spirit is identified here as the design, divine author of the Psalms he's about to quote. Okay, and, and this is a much-needed reminder of this: that God is not just the author of the Psalm, but God is the author of all Scripture. Okay, and so if you have a copy of your Bible, you could say that God wrote a book, right? 
and he called it the Bible. Okay, the content of Scripture is all God. Um, Albert Muller, who's a, um, a scholar and an author, wrote this. When we hear Scripture, read Scripture, study Scripture, or encounter Scripture in any way, we can be confident God is speaking to us. God wrote a book, and it's called the Bible. And lives are radically changed by the Bible. Another key element of verse 7 is the word, therefore. Okay? Whenever you're reading your Bible and you come across this word, you need to ask the following question. What is the therefore? Oh, fantastic. You guys are already doing this. This is great. Therefore is a word that wants us to look back because what will follow it is a result of what was said before it. And so what was said before, the therefore in, this, in, the, um, in verse 7. Look at verse 6 okay, of chapter 3 of Hebrews. It reads, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This time last week, from the life of Moses, we discovered that Moses is awesome. Right? He was used by God to do extraordinary things. He really was. And then we discovered that if you put Moses next to Jesus, he pales in comparison to Jesus. Jesus is better. Jesus is superior to Moses. We also learned that Jesus is also superior to any great man or woman who, has, who, has been, who in your eyes has been faithful and is godly and Jesus is better than all of them. And so that's what we covered last week, that Jesus... Jesus is God's son who was faithful to God in the most perfect of ways. He really was, and this is why Jesus is better. And as a result, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and that means that Jesus is the king and ruler of God's people, and we are part of God's people if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. In other words, we are truly God's people if our hope and faith remains rooted in Christ and not in good works or spiritual disciplines to gain God's love and approval. Put simply, we are truly God's people if Jesus remains our only hope. Therefore, look at verse 7. As the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, verse 8, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts. In the Bible, the word heart has two common meanings. Sometimes it refers to the organ that pumps blood around our body that keeps us alive, obviously. But sometimes in the Bible... The word heart is a metaphor that refers to the personality, intellect, memory, emotions, desires, or the will of a person. And so in verse 8, we're instructed not to do what? To harden our hearts if we do what? If we hear God's voice. The question is, what does this mean? What does it mean to have a heart that is hard towards God's voice? Look at verses um, eight, 8 again, verses 8 and 9. Do not harden your hearts. What does it say next? 
as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. The author of Hebrews, what he's doing is looking back at a historical event to help us understand what it looks like, what a hard heart looks like, okay? What he doesn't do in terms of when it comes to defining a hard heart, he doesn't say this is what a hard heart is. Instead, he looks back at a story, a historical event, to illustrate truly what a hard heart is. And he describes this historical event as the rebellion. Okay? He also describes it as the day of testing in the wilderness, where the people of Israel put God to the test, even though they had witnessed him work miracles for 40 days. And this historical event is recorded um, in the book of Numbers, in the book of Numbers. And so what was happening before this particular incident in Numbers, in, um, incident in Numbers is that God had obviously rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, and he had done so in the most miraculous way. He parted the Red Sea. He provided food for them in the form of manna. He provided water through a rock. God did extraordinary things to deliver his people, and the reason why he delivered his people was not just to prove how great and mighty he is, but he chose those people, and when he chose those people, he had a land for them. He had a place for them to go. And so after rescuing them from um, um, Egypt, he said, look, I'm going to take you to the promised land. And the journey to the promised land should have taken two weeks. But it took 40 years. They didn't have GPS back then. No, I'm kidding. It took 40 years. And the reason why it took 40 years, because they were complaining, they were grumbling, they were just being rebellious in so many ways. So it took longer than it should have when they finally get, got to the point where they could enter the promised land. What happened, and this is recorded in Numbers, is that they, God instructed them and said, hey, send spies over to the land you're going to occupy and possess, send spies to just have a look at what is there. And God told them and said, I am going to give you this land. Just go check it out and get excited about it. So they sent a couple of their people to the land. Those people looked, came back and said, no way. <laughs> no way, Jose. <laughs> we cannot do this. You should have seen, you should see the people there. They are like giants. And oh, the land is awesome. It's got some amazing stuff. You should see the grapes and everything. But no way we can possess this land. The people are giants. As a result of this, God responded and was provoked by them because they refused to believe him. They, their hearts were occupied and consumed by unbelief. God was provoked. Look at verse 10. Therefore, God says, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Look at verse 11. As I swore in my heart, they shall not enter my rest. 
this was the punishment. This was a consequence. A whole generation of Israelites, God's people, did not make it into the promised land because they hardened their hearts, and the hardening of our hearts leads to unbelief. What exactly is God's rest? In, you know, in verse 11, you know, it says God's rest, but we know that it's referring to the promised land. And to demonstrate what it means to have a hard heart, this is what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's saying, look at the people of Israel. Their refusal to obey and believe God is what a hard heart looks like. In view of this, we can say that a hard heart is a heart that is plagued with unbelief and as a result ends up turning away from the living God. A hard heart is a heart that is plagued with unbelief and as a result, ends up turning away from the living God. It can be likened to a spiritual callus that is built up by an action done over and over again. Douglas Moo is spot on when he said, hardness of heart refers to those who have set their wills against the will of the Lord. Charles Sindor, who's a Bible teacher, um, says this, Although those tragic events of rebellion in the wilderness had occurred centuries earlier, the author of Hebrews brought it to bear on his own readers because he saw in them a strikingly similar tendency toward dullness of hearing and hardness of heart. And so from here on, what the author of Hebrews is going to do is that he's going to give advice on how to avoid the same mistake as the Israelites. He, he's almost like, look, remember what happened to the people of Israel. Remember how they hardened their hearts and faced the consequences of their rebellion. Let me tell you what you need to do to avoid making the same mistake. Let me help you know what to do to avoid having a hard heart. Before we move on, let me just remind you of something, okay? That this letter or this essay or sermon, Hebrews, was written to first century Jewish Christians. And a lot of us are like, yes, it was written to them. They understand the Old Testament. What has it got to do with me? Yes, they are different in a lot of ways to us. The Christian community that this was written to is very different to us in a lot of ways. They're different in that they lived in a different generation. They are ethnic Jews. We are a hodgepodge of ethnicities. We really are. And we are very different. But what we need to remember is that we are the same in other ways, and the most important thing we have in common with them is that we are followers of Jesus, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, just like they are. And because of this, everything, listen carefully, everything we're about to look at 
relates to us. It's relevant for us. It was written by the Holy Spirit for Christians in all generations, and that includes us. And so King's Cross Church, with the tragic story of Israel's rebellion in mind, this is what we're instructed to do in order to avoid becoming hard-hearted. Okay, number one, we can avoid becoming hard-hearted by examining our hearts, by examining our hearts. Look at verse 12. It says, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. The phrase take care is best understood as be careful or beware. Essentially, it's a warning. The author of Hebrews is urging us to be careful we don't end up like the people of Israel. We are being urged to make sure our own hearts are not infected with the disease of evil and unbelief, which will eventually cause us to fall away from the living God, just like the people of Israel. FYI. As we work through this warning passage, like this one in Hebrews, and we're going to have several others in the future, and I'm going to keep reminding you of what I'm about to remind you of, we need to remember that the scriptures don't teach here in Hebrews. Nowhere else in scripture that genuine Christians can lose their salvation. Doesn't teach that at all. In other words, it's impossible for those who are truly who truly belong to Christ to fall away. Why is that? Because our salvation didn't start with us. It's not going to be sustained by us and it will not be completed by us. Your salvation was initiated by Jesus. It will be sustained by Jesus and Jesus will bring it to completion. Amen? However, this all shouldn't be an excuse for us to ignore and skip over passages like this. Like, now, yeah, it don't, it don't relate to me. I am saved by grace. So I'm going to ignore passages like this. They are still relevant for us as Christians. Um, Pastor Andrew Leitner says this. This doesn't mean that these warning passages lose their bite for you and me, because for those of us who truly are resting on Jesus Christ, as he's freely offered to us in the gospel, these passages are a divine means of shaking us and jolting us a little bit when we need it so that we would remember the importance of God in our hearts. This stern warning to take care and beware and be warned and to guard our hearts, I would say is essentially a call to examine the condition of our hearts. And so if you're a Christian here, when you come across passages like this that are um, um, warning you and exhorting you to take care, it's time to examine the condition of your heart. And so when we come to passages like this, we should all seriously pause. Pause and reflect. We're to respond. 
right? Like Jesus' disciples, who after they heard, after Jesus said to them, one of us, you remember when Jesus said to them, when they were having the, the supper and on, on the Passover, Jesus said to them, one of you is going to betray me. Okay, how do they respond? They were like, no, 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 not me. Right? In essence, they were, Matthew chapter 26, verse 11, they responded by, it says, and they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after the other, is it I, Lord? Is it I? And so spiritually speaking, what's the condition of your heart? Has your heart been overcome by the infectious disease of unbelief? What area in your life are you refusing to believe God? How is your heart and attitude toward God? Are you obeying his commands or what he is leading you to do? Are you today holding fast to Christ and his promises? Psalm 139, absolutely, absolutely life. Verse 23 to 24 reads this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That should be one of the most consistent prayers we pray. And we can gladly and with confidence approach God and ask Him to search our hearts because when we do, God is not going to harm us and judge us, but his desire for us as we confess and I'll admit the things that he shows us, his intention is not just to, it's not to judge us, but to heal us and to provide healing and to refine or refocus our eyes on Jesus. He is such a gracious God. And so... We've seen that we can avoid becoming hard-hearted by examining our hearts. Next, we can avoid becoming hard-hearted by encouraging one another. Encouraging one another. And you can put in parenthesis, in parenthesis the need for community. Community. Just put community. Look at verse 13. But I exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is described in this verse as what? Deceitful. Israel rebelled against God because they were hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And this is one of the things that makes sin devastating. It's deceitful. Nobody likes being deceived. I know you don't. I don't. This week I was deceived by Spectrum, <laughs> the internet and phone provider. <laughs> All right? 
A year ago, we signed up. <laughs> if you work for Spectrum, I'm sorry. <laughs> this is true. We signed up <laughs> for you know the internet and phone, and you know they, you know they were like, oh, and I you know I, I compared the costs, and man, it was a great price, great price. This week, a year later, I receive a letter saying, hey, FYI, your promotion is over. Your internet, right, is not the price we gave you anymore, but because the promotion is over, we're going to add $30 to the monthly price. I looked at that and I was like, why didn't someone tell me that before? And the reason why is it was a small print. And a small print is what often deceives us. Spectrum. (laughs) Sin is like that. Sin is deceitful because it over-promises and under-delivers. Sin is deceitful because it makes you believe that you can actually gain God's love and approval through good deeds. Sin is deceitful because it wants you to believe the lie that there will always be an opportunity to turn back to God. Sin is deceitful because it hides the consequences and promotes the benefits. Sin is deceitful because it encourages you to keep, you know, your sin in the dark by making you believe that, yeah, you're going to be fine. No one's going to find out. Sin is deceitful. Uh, It's as deceitful as the dishonest car salesman who hides the defects of the car and only promotes the external beauty of the vehicle. Sin is deceitful because it aims to make created things look more desirable than God and more valuable than all that God is for you in Jesus Christ. Sin is devastating because it's deceitful. It overpromises, underdelivers all the time. And so are you being deceived by sin? Have you been hacked? by the deceitfulness of sin? Is there any sin in your life that you entertain and refuse to put to death? Are you at total war with your sin or do you pick and choose your battles? Sin is deceitful. And the sin of unbelief is devastating. Do not coddle and entertain the sin of unbelief. It will end up in devastation. And so sin is deceitful. And as I talk about sin being deceitful, no, it's like, gosh, where is it? What is in my heart? We need to search our hearts. We really do. And the question I'm sure you're asking, and if you don't, I want to ask it for you, is what's the remedy for sin? What will help us not be deceived by sin? Look at verse 13. Again, but exhort one another every day, 
Okay? Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I would say this has in it the most effective remedy against the deceitfulness of sin. And it is to exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. You want a remedy? You want a defense against the deceitfulness of sin? Exhort one another. Exhort one another. The Greek word for exhort in this verse is paraclete. Paraclete means to strongly encourage someone. Picture um, the, the military commander who is encouraging and motivating his soldiers to move forward. Thus, in light of this, we're being instructed to strongly encourage one another. John Piper says that this is one of the great callings on your Christian, on your life as a Christian. One of the great callings on your life as a Christian is to strongly encourage other Christians. Why is that? Because you are God's appointed means to keep other Christians from being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You are God's appointed means to keep other Christians from being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And when we talk about your calling, your great calling to exhort other Christians, where basically, if we zoom out, we are talking about the importance of being in community. The importance of regularly gathering with other Christians. The reason why we make a big deal out of Sunday gatherings and out of community groups is not for us to get any, we're not getting any commission from this. The reason why we make a big deal out of these gatherings is because that's the context in which you get to be and grow and spend time with other Christians so that they can strongly encourage you when you need it. You have blind spots. I have blind spots. And as I look at the need to exhort one another, I'm reminded by the men and women God has placed around me that have helped me know whenever I have bad breath. <laughs> have you ever had bad breath and not known it? You have, right? You go eat ramen bunch of garlic in it and you're done and you're like I'm gonna have a mint and brush my teeth and I'm gonna be fresh and you go amongst people and everybody knows it everybody's like gosh <laughs> but you don't know it you don't see it and that is a wacky comical example of why we need community because a lot of the time Community sees what you cannot see. You have blind spots. And God has graciously provided community so that they can see your blind spots and correct you where need be. Confront and correct and encourage you towards Christ. But also, community exists to care for us when we 
need it the most. I can't tell you how blessed I have been, Eleanor and how my family have been by the support of Christian community, of brothers and sisters who have showed up and spoke words of encouragement for us when we have been at our lowest. And so community is important. To avoid having a hard heart towards God that eventually leads you away from God, you need community. You really do. We can avoid becoming hard-hearted by not only examining our hearts, encouraging one another, but lastly, depending on Jesus' faithfulness. Depending on Jesus' faithfulness. I was trying to find an E for depend, but I couldn't. So I just, whatever. If you've been, you know, anyway, moving on. Verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And so we've been urged to take care and exhort one another, not just to avoid a hard heart, but because we have come to share in Christ. What does it mean to share in Christ? It basically means that you are united with Christ. And if you're united with Christ, you are a Christian. You are a believer. You have been born again. And how do we know we are saved? How do we know we share in Christ and are united with him? Look at the verse again. We will know we are united. We share with Christ. Listen to this. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. It's going to get interesting. In other words, we know we are united with Christ if we are faithful to the end Trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed. On the surface, this verse comes across as if it's up to us to remain and sustain and be faithful to the end. Okay, and we've touched on it before. Comes across as if it's up to us to sustain. If if, right, you are united with Christ, if indeed you persevere until the end. This is not what verse 14 is saying, obviously. And this is why. Notice something, right, in the verse, okay? Notice that it doesn't say we will come, we will come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. But it actually says, and I'm using the ESV, it actually says, we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. This means that perseverance to the end in faith is this. Is a necessary confirmation that we have been born again. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, 
doesn't mean it's up to us to stay saved, but it does mean this. It does mean that the outcome of our lives demonstrates the validity of our faith. Perseverance in faith is the ultimate proof of the reality of faith, said one author. Perseverance of our faith is proof of the reality of faith. As I look and as I was studying this, I had, I looked back and I remembered several friends and family who at one time were passionate for Jesus. Had tattoos with scripture, just passionate about God and his word and Jesus. And now they have fallen away. They have no interest in the things of God. And that's heartbreaking. It's discouraging in so many ways. And we still pray and hope that by God's grace, they would be back, all of that stuff. But I'm not the only one that has experienced this. Some of you have as well. Have friends and family that started off well, but it looks like they're not going to finish with Jesus As we think about other people, we also have to look at our church community. Remember, this letter is written to a church community. And he's saying to them, look, hey, we've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence. So he's basically saying that there will be people in your church community that will not remain faithful to Jesus to the end. And that's scary because it relates to us as a church. I don't know what the future holds, but if we believe in the authority of Scripture and believe what Scripture says is true, there may be several of us here who one day we will hear have not persevered till the end. <sighs> Verse 15 says, comes back to how he started. It's, uh, the author says, As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. All of your life, you have been hearing the voice of God. God has been speaking. And whether you believe it or not, one of the ways God speaks is through creation. 
creation is said to be a revelation of who God is. God has spoken to us through his written word, the scriptures. God speaks in so many ways, in different times. We, we found this out at the beginning of Hebrews in chapter 1, right? When it said long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But what we discovered is that God has been speaking and he has spoken in the most powerful way ever. And that is through his son, Jesus Christ. God has spoken clearly and effectively through his son, Jesus Christ. Israel's failures and issues is a reminder of something. It's a reminder that we're no different. We are prone to unbelief. All of our hearts are hard, can, potentially can be hardened, and we have and continue to fail miserably. We fail one another above all. We fail, the, we fail Jesus Christ himself. But even through our ongoing faithlessness, Jesus remains faithful. Why? Let me give you an example. You remember in the Gospels, you remember in the Gospels, before Jesus began his public ministry, what happened? He, where did he go? Where did he go? He went into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, for 40 days, 40 days, and during those 40 days, Jesus was tempted by Satan. What's interesting about Jesus' experience is that the people of Israel in the wilderness failed, but Jesus succeeded. He remained faithful. Jesus' perfect record of faithfulness wasn't for him alone. It was for us as well. This is how it works. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, what happens is that we are clothed with his perfect record of righteousness so that we too would be seen as righteous and faithful before the living God. When we put our faith in Jesus... At the end of the day, it's only through Jesus Christ and in Christ that we persevere in the wilderness of our lives. It's only through Christ and in Christ that we are fed and provided for in the wilderness. It's only through Christ and in Christ. If indeed you are believing upon Christ, that you will be kept secure in this life and be led home to your final rest in eternity. This morning, God has spoken. He will continue to speak to you. 
And when you hear his voice, may your heart not be hardened. But may you respond with a heart that is willing to obey him. So we got a dog. Yes, we have. And we've called him Messy, not as in the character flaw or the personality flaw, but the soccer player, Messi. And Messi's interesting. He, you know, we're trying to teach him and everything like that, you know, to obey stuff and obey commands. And one thing he always responds to, there's been several times when he's gone missing, okay? He's gone missing. And 10 times out of 10, he will respond to this word, treat. Treat. You can go, messy, messy. He's not going to come. As soon as you say treat, <laughs> he's out. He responds to treat. And I was thinking about this and I was like, God, when I think about who you are, and I think about what you've done for me in Jesus Christ. I hope I respond to whatever you ask of me. I respond as enthusiastically and immediately as Messi responds to treat. I want to respond to God's voice in that way. And so what has God been saying to you? How has he been speaking to you? May you respond today. When you hear his voice today, may you say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And when you find yourself struggling to faithfully obey, may you say, thank you, Lord for Jesus and for his faithfulness that has been counted to me. Let's pray. Oh God, continue to speak. And as you do, may our hearts be responsive to your voice. May you soften our hearts indeed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.